And the reason that net zero is so important is because we do not have a choice. We heard the IPCC report saying we're going to smash, we're going to breeze past 1.5 degrees. We're probably going to breeze past 2 degrees and where we stop after that is a very big problem for all of us. That's the Chief Executive of Australia's Smart Energy Council, John Grimes, who was speaking at a Net Zero Energy Forum organised by Carly Tink, who is the Independent Federal Member for North Sydney. Welcome. You've found the latest episode of Climate Conversations, and I'm your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Before we go any further, I'd urge you to follow this podcast. Yes, follow it and you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. Next we have an introduction to the four people on the panel at the Carly Tink event, and then you can find a link to the entire proceedings in the show notes. Well, look at a really important issue in this local area. How can North Sydney get to net zero emissions by 2035? Now, to discuss that point, we're joined by some of Australia's leading experts in clean energy and the best ways to use that energy. So please welcome to the chairs, uh, John Grimes from the Smart Energy Council, uh, Saul Griffith from Rewiring Australia, Dr. Kate Charlesworth from the Climate Council, and Tim Buckley from Clean Energy Finance. Now, before we uh, kick off, I'm going to ask each of you on the panel uh, if you can introduce yourselves. So you'll do a better job of introducing yourselves than I will of introducing you. And and tell us uh, in about a minute, uh, Max, why getting to net zero emissions by 2035 is so important. Start with you, John. So my name is John Grimes. I'm the Chief Executive of the Smart Energy Council. And the reason that net zero is so important is because we do not have a choice. We heard the IPCC report saying we're going to smash, we're going to breeze past 1.5 degrees. We're probably going to breeze past 2 degrees, and where we stop after that is a very big problem for all of us. That's why net zero is so important. And the reason I'm so pleased to be here today, John, is North Sydney is a community that has stood up and taken power back. Said, actually, we're not going to buy into the vested interests of big political parties who organise for their own means. We're going to actually pr- you know, um, promote the interests of our people. And that is a really powerful force, and it's emerging around Australia. Saul Griffith for Rewiring Australia and um, Rewiring America. Why is Net Zero 2035 so important? I think there's a couple of answers to that question. Um, If we absolutely perfectly replace every machine in the world that burns on fossil fuels at its retirement, so if you have a 15-year-old Honda Civic in three years, when it dies, you get an electric car. If everyone's on that schedule, that's about a 1.8 degree world. That's a, and that's sort of the net zero 2040 world. So 2035 is great as a target and might be, it's more commensurate with 1.5. Um, one of the reasons that we need to get, have these ambitious targets is Australia, and I do economic modelling of this energy transition around the world, we save the most money first. 
So people now talk about this transition as the cost. That's the, all the politicians start with, but it's going to cost us. They should all be beginning with, it's going to save us, and actually not just save us, quite literally, but save us a huge amount of money. And because Australia gets to go first and prove that and demonstrate that, I think we literally are the, um, the engine for ambition in the world. So if we can get, and this is why I've been a big advocate, advocate for proving at scale in real communities what the solutions look like, if Australia gets their first community zero by 2025 or 2028, we will lift the ambition of America because we're like, look at those people, they look like us, why, why do they get all that? Um, so I think it's on us to go faster and get the world to lift its ambition. Um, as ambitious as the Inflation Reduction Act was, it probably only gets half the emission reductions required for a, beating a two degree target. So it has to be more ambitious, our policy response, than what the Americans did. Finally, if you look at the science that's coming out, we've underestimated the cooling caused by sulfur emissions and other emissions. So we've masked some of the cooling. And even when they say the one and a half degree target is one and a half degrees by the end of this century, but we've locked in a thousand years of warming. So one and a half degrees this century probably means five or six degrees for the grandchildren of our grandchildren. So net zero 2035, maybe we'll bring that in as we realize this is good for us and saves us money. <laughs> Um, morning everyone, Kate Charlesworth, I'm a public health doctor and a health expert at the Climate Council. Um, I'm here today because climate change is a health issue. Okay? Certainly it's an environmental issue, it's a social issue, it's an economic issue. Fundamentally, it's also about health and about care. And there are substantial health risks and harms from fossil fuels. There was some research that came out of Harvard last year that found that fossil fuel air pollution so that's air pollution from coal, oil and gas, is responsible for more than 8 million deaths globally every year. That's the same number of deaths as from cigarette smoking. Okay. So that's the harms, but also conversely, huge health benefits from climate action, from clean energy, from clean transport and from a whole range of climate actions. And I think that's a very positive and important story to tell. So that's what I'll be talking about today. Thanks. Good morning. Uh, Tim Buckley, I'm at Climate Energy Finance, a think tank. Um, why is today so important? Why is net zero so important? We have a climate emergency, but I'll maybe put the other side to what Saul said. We actually have a massive, massive opportunity for our country, and I think we need to absolutely wrestle back control of our democracy from the fossil fuel industry and hence why I'm such a huge supporter of Kylie and all of our teals, because that is restoring our democracy and that's allowing our country to then seize the opportunities that are ahead of us. They are massive. Now, please don't forget, you'll find a link to the Kylie Tink event in the show notes. Join me now as we switch to the New York Times for a story that has the headline, Meet the Climate Hackers of Malawi. When it comes to growing food, some of the smallest farmers in the world are becoming some of the most creative farmers in the world. Like Judith Harry and her neighbours, they are sowing pigeon peas to shade their soils from a hotter, more scorching sun. They are planting vertia grass to keep floodwaters at bay. They are resurrecting old crops like finger millet and forgotten yams and planting trees that naturally fertilise the soil. A few are turning away from one legacy of European colonialism. 
the practice of planting rows and rows of maize or corn and saturating the fields with chemical fertilisers. One crop might fail, another crop might do well, said Mrs Harry, who has abandoned her parents' tradition of growing just maize and tobacco and added peanuts, sunflowers and soy to her fields. That might save your season. We are still with the New York Times, and the headline for the story by Samini Singapta is what climate change could mean for the coffee you drink. The story begins. The first bad news, the types of coffee that most of us drink, Arabica and Robusta, are at grave risk in the era of climate change. Now the good news. Farmers in one of Africa's biggest coffee exporting countries are growing a whole other variety that better withstands the heat, drought and disease, supersized by global warming. For years, they've just been mixing it into bags of low-priced Robusta. This year, they're trying to sell it to the world under its own true name, Liberica Excelsior. I think the three reasons why climate creates a lot of anxiety. The first reason is to do with the state of the planet. So there's a lot of narrative discussion out there about how the planet's going to rack and ruin. And that's a pretty scary image if you're a human being because we know we depend on the planet. So that's number one. The second side to it is a lot of talk about politicians being useless, corporations being corrupt, so none of the powers that be really caring. If they do do something that looks like action for the climate, that's greenwashing or you know, saving the tax bill or whatever it is. And then on top of that, we live in a culture in which there's a lot of expectations on individuals to figure things out for themselves and then take action. So you've got a planet that's going to rack and ruin, you've got useless politicians and corporations, so you're the one that's meant to solve it all. Well, that is just a recipe for anxiety because it isn't something in which there's a straightforward way in which it can be resolved. So anxiety, if you like, from an evolutionary point of view, is useful because it pushes us into action. But when the action is so difficult to understand, it can be really quite crippling and, and debilitating. That's New Zealand's Nikki Hari, who specialises in the psychological aspects of community and sustainability issues. You can find her on a story from the newsroom by Rod O'Ram, and the story is headlined, Anxiety into Action. The story begins, For many of us, anxiety is often triggered by the sheer scale and complexity of the crisis and the solution to it. The situation is so dire... Our actions are so feeble. Whatever I do is inconsequential. Are just a few of the thoughts we have. Yet that anxiety can also spur us into action and help us work with others to push for positive changes. You'll find a link to that story in the show notes. I can't avoid another brief rant. Here in Shepparton, we've probably had half a dozen new service stations built in the last 12 to 18 months. And now, two more on the way, only a block apart. I don't understand. The major car companies have already said that the fossil fuel-powered car 
has a limited future, so limited in fact, they've set dates of 2035, which is only about 16 years away. So here are these companies investing, what I assume are millions of dollars, building places where you can buy fuel for these fossil fuel dinosaurs. Also, just today, the news is flooding in about the fact that the Northern Territory government has given the go-ahead the Beetaloo Basin gas project. That is a carbon bomb. I don't understand. People just don't get it. Major international agencies have said unequivocally that we must no longer approve any fossil fuel projects. I emphasise the word any fossil fuel projects. And yet, so-called thinking people all around the world are still endorsing them. Let's shift to the ABC News for the next story. And the ABC is the Australian Broadcasting Commission. The story is by Anna Conn, and the headline for her story is Rural Insurance Premiums Soar After Climate Disasters with Contractors, Farmers Paying the Price. And the story begins, The cost of rural insurance has risen significantly as the number of natural disasters has continued to climb. A combination of national and international natural disasters and a fast-diminishing underwriter market plus the cost of goods are hitting farmers and contractors hard. According to an insurance broker in Dubbo, New South Wales, premiums have increased by 20-40% to 40% in recent times, depending on the insurer. Narromine-based spray contractor Ben Burrell covers the central west and western plains of New South Wales with three full-time staff. It's really scary because I simply can't operate without insurance, Mr Burrell said. Now Joshua S. Hill writes on Renew Economy, rooftop solar economics, outstanding in Australia, even as module prices creep up. His story begins. Despite Australia's continued strength as a global solar energy leader, the Australian PV market contracted somewhat in 2022 and saw an increase in the cost of residential systems. The international energy agencies, that's the IEA, Photovoltaic Power Systems Program, that's the PVPS, published its annual report late last month, in which they outlined the latest figures in technology research and best practices. Australia remained the world leader in terms of solar per person, beating out the Netherlands and Germany. That was unsurprisingly lower on the list of terms of total solar PV capacity added. According to the report, there was a noticeable pullback in the Australian PV market, with 4 gigawatt of solar installed throughout the year, compared to 5 gigawatt in 2021. Next we have a second story from Renew Economy. The story is by Giles Parkinson, and the headline for the story is Low wind and solar prices and long-duration batteries where now for pumped hydro? The story begins. One of the big questions in energy markets right now is whether enough new wind, solar and storage can be built to replace the ageing coal generators that are to exit the system over the next decade. It's a crucial issue. The biggest crunch point is in New South Wales because it is the country's biggest grid and the biggest coal fleet. But all of its coal generators could be gone by 2034 and earlier if the ageing machinery breaks down. If the state is serious about 1.5 degrees Celsius climate targets, coal needs to be gone by 2029. 
That doesn't give a whole lot of time to build new capacity. Already, there are concerns about the ability to have enough in place to cover the planned closure of the biggest coal generator, the 2.8 gigawatt earring facility, in late 2025, let alone the later closures of Vales Point, Bayswater and Mount Piper. The next story is from The Conversation and it has the headline, Kicking the Gas Can Down the Road. Why a gas price cap is the worst way to protect energy consumers. The story is written by Ariel Lehman. Ariel is the director of the Monash Energy Institute and professor of Sustainable Energy Systems, Faculty of Information Technology at Monash University. His story begins. The federal government's plan to extend the gas price cap is not surprising, given fundamental market issues remain. For as long as the war in Ukraine continues... Australian gas will attract premium prices overseas. So the temporary $12 per gigajoule cap on wholesale domestic prices intended to protect local energy users will no longer be lifted in December. It will stay for a further 18 months at least. This is just kicking the can down the road rather than developing a coherent energy policy. A price cap is the worst of all credible options to establish market price or price stability. It creates perverse incentives to continue with inefficient industry and residential energy use practices. It also delays progress towards emissions reduction and transition to renewable energy. Well, later this month, Extinction Rebellion have some major disruptions planned for your day if you're in Melbourne and presumably other major Australian cities. Those are the disruptive climate protests that have driven many crazy. Some have been filled with rage over these tactics, but do they actually work? Do the radical tactics of groups like Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil, such as interrupting sporting matches or blocking road intersections, actually work? quite know what that was for. Terrible, terrible scenes here at the Crucible. That was Just Stop Oil's protest at the World Snooker Championship where a man threw orange powder all over the snooker table. It's just one example of these recent actions. Jane Morton is a Melbourne-based clinical psychologist and spokesperson for the environmental activism group Extinction Rebellion Australia. Jane, welcome to you. Thank you. We have seen some pretty significant actions recently in the UK, including that Just Stop Oil protest at the uh, World Snooker Championships. I mean, these are disruptive and destructive actions that can really ruin people's days. Do the means justify the ends? I think I certainly think so. And, and just to be clear, we've used those tactics in Australia as well. Um, I think the most important thing in terms of proportionality is to recognise that we're in a climate emergency um, and one where we're perilously close to um, out-of-control warming, the point of no return, beyond which we won't be able to do much to rein in further warming. It's a what scientists are describing as an ex- existential threat, a threat that could end human civilization. So I think really anything we can do to sound the alarm is perfectly reasonable. That story is from Radio National on ABC Radio. That's the Australian Broadcasting Commission. And the story is, why do climate change activists do disruptive protests? You can find the link to that story in the show notes. Now we have another story from ABC News. 
The headline for that story is, Engie plans to fill Hazelwood coal mine with water in, in billion-dollar rehabilitation project. The story begins. The owner of the former Hazelwood coal mine in Victoria's Latrobe Valley expects to spend about $1 billion filling it with water, but a conservation group says it has serious concerns about the plan. The Hazelwood mine and adjacent power station ceased operating in 2017, and its owner, French energy company Engie, wants to rehabilitate the site by turning in the mine into a lake. If approved, the lake would contain 725 gigalitres of water, more than Sydney Harbour. The project is being reviewed by the Victorian and Federal Governments, with the State Government ordering Engie to produce an environmental effects statement. Now we have a story from EcoWatch, and the story is written by Kristen Hemingway-Janes. The headline for the story is, Debris from SpaceX Explosion Coated Texas Town and Smashed into Wildlife Refuge. The story begins. On April 20, Elon Musk's SpaceX Starship exploded over the Gulf of Mexico, three minutes into its inaugural launch. While the fiery spectacle caught the attention of the public, it was the eruptive, ground-level portion of the launch that has been attracting more intense scrutiny from the government and environmentalists. Last Thursday's blast-off from SpaceX Starbase facility in Boca Chica, Texas, blew a cloud of shattered concrete over neighbouring Port Isabel, according to the US Fish and Wildlife Service, spokesperson Aubrey Buzek, as Reuters reported. A report from the agency said that big chunks of metal and concrete that were thrown thousands of feet into the grounds of a national wildlife refuge, causing a three and a half acre fire, have led to new concerns about the environmental impact of the company's operations. Now we have a second story from EcoWatch, and this one is by Paige Bennett. And the headline for that story is Increase in Urban Beekeeping Could Be Harming Wild Bees. The story begins. A new study raises concern over the rise in urban beekeeping, as researchers say it could be negatively impacting wild bees. Urban beekeeping could be especially harmful for smaller bees that have limited foraging ranges. A team led by researchers at Concordia University compared bee populations collecting data from 15 sites around Montreal in 2013 and again in the same sites in 2020. Sites included parks, community gardens and cemeteries. Additionally, the researchers analysed habitats, floral resources and other factors that impact wild bees. A green hydrogen powerhouse. Let's talk about climate change. Yeah, something new and different is bringing to Radio National climate alarmism. I mean, honestly. How dare you? This is the last chance. Well, speaking of climate change, this is the Carbon Counter, our weekly look at climate economics and decarbonisation here on RN Drive. Now, did you sit back and have a glass of wine over the weekend? And if you did, was it an Australian drop? 
because there's no shortage of variety in this country from cooler climate wines in Tasmania to warmer climate wine made in Western Australia. The industry itself is worth something like $40 billion and it adds billions more to the Australian economy each year. But as an export sector, it's facing some pretty stark challenges in terms of adaptation. Uh, Climate change means more bushfires, vines are ripening quicker, the fruit can get sun damaged, the list goes on. So how much longer will cooler climate wines actually be cool, cool climate, I wonder. Uh, well, the industry is facing some pretty stiff challenges uh, and looking for some innovative ways to adapt. Andrew Margan is a winemaker and vigneron in Broke in the Hunter Valley of New South Wales, where they've just wrapped up their vintage 2023 harvest. Andrew, welcome to you. As a winemaker for many years now, working in Australia and France, what changes have you noticed with the climate over this time in terms of how winemakers go about translating the fruit into the wine that you produce? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, there's no farmer on the on the planet who isn't noticing climate change, that's for sure. And um, the, the ebbs and flows, I guess, the, the changes that are happening, um, the significance to the wine industry is uh, it, reasonable in Australia. It's nowhere near as massive as it's been in, in Europe, though, in the Northern Hemisphere, where... Um, where a lot of the quality vineyards in in Europe are grown in quite marginal climates uh, historically, and those the, those climates are are getting warmer, and and the marginality is around getting grapes ripe, and the warmer the climate gets, the uh, easier the grapes ripen. So, it's interesting to see the northern hemisphere all of a sudden having just um, grape vintage after grape vintage after grape vintage. So that historically that's not how it works um, here in Australia. I mean. Uh, you know, Tasmania is starting to plant Shiraz and things like that. So, you know, the, things are, are shifting south uh, as as you tend to do when you're seeking slightly cooler uh, cooler climates to, to grow grapes in. And they, I mean, climate's everything in terms of, of making wine and stylistically the climate determines just what style of wine you're going to make. So uh, it's a pretty important thing. You'll find the link to the ABC Radio National Story, How Wine is Wrestling with Climate Change, in the show notes. We go back to EcoWatch for another story, and this one has the headline, 40% of life in ocean's biodiverse twilight zone could disappear amid warming seas. This story is also written by Kristen Hemingway-Janes. The story begins... Just below the surface of the world's ocean is a layer of deep where sunlight doesn't reach, known as the mesopelagic. Its depths of 656 to 3,280 feet are cold and dark, with flash but luminescent light. In fact, there is more life here than the rest of the ocean put together. One study found that 95% of the world's fish hide out in this mysterious zone. Some of the marine species in the midwater as the layer is also known, among the biggest on Earth, but most are small and an important part of the ocean's food web. These creatures ferry enormous amounts of carbon from the surface of the sea into its depths as an essential part of the planet's climate regulation process. A new study predicts that the abundance of life hiding in the twilight zone will face considerable declines, even extinctions in some cases, as global waters warm unless food makes its way into the ocean depths. Now we shift to a story from Mother Jones. It's by James Brugers. It has the headline, Environmentalists Seek Into Plastic Industry Hoax. The story begins. The newest flashpoint in a political battle between environmental groups 
in the plastic industry over chemical or advanced recycling has to do with the kind of claims that can be made and still be truthful with American consumers. The Federal Trade Commission is weighing its first changes in 10 years to its Green Guides, which establish guidelines for companies' environmental advertising and labelling claims. The FTC's review goes far beyond plastic recycling and includes concepts such as net zero related to greenhouse gas emissions, biodegradability, sustainability and organic products. And from The Guardian we hear a story by Ewan Ritchie that has the headline Australia being unable to afford greater environmental protection is a government myth that refuses to die. The story begins. Like trickle-down economics, or goldfish memories only being three seconds long, there's a myth that continues to haunt this nation, and, like a zombie, it refuses to die. This myth, and the damage it inflicts, has been aided and abetted by the Australian Government. This deception is propagated and perpetuated for political purposes. What is this myth? The notion that a government simply can't afford to greatly increase spending on environmental protection and recovery. Climate change disasters and adaptation. Uh, It's a bit unfortunate that this is a major area of focus uh, for us, um, but it's something that we are not shying from. It's crucial that the university is not only working on the sort of emissions reduction side of things, but SEI in particular has been working around climate disasters, climate adaptation, resilience, um, social capital infrastructure, as we'll hear about today, all of these crucial issues about community, community response uh, to disasters and climate change. That's David Sloshberger, but I'll let him introduce himself. For those who don't know me, uh, I'm David Schlossberger. I'm the director of the, the SEI. I'm a professor of environmental politics. My work um, for decades now, getting old, is uh, uh, has been on environmental justice, on climate justice, on justice in adaptation, work with the city of Sydney on um, the development of the adaptation policy here, including a deliberative uh, democratic process for that, work with Resilient Sydney uh, on uh, the Resilient Sydney process uh, and community experiences of shock events years ago before they got more frequent and more ugly. Um, so I've been doing quite a bit of that work and it's just, um, it's been quite, uh, I don't know, reassuring in some way um, and just really engaging to see the the number of researchers across campus um, from senior researchers to ECRs, grad students, uh, honor students interested in this whole sphere of not just disasters, but what it means for communities, how communities can react, how communities can react constructively uh, to uh, to climate disaster uh, and to resilience. The webinar is entitled Just Adaptation and the Role of Social Capital and you'll find a link to that webinar in the show notes. Finally, we move to the conversation where we have a story by James Painter who is a research associate with the Reuters Institute at the University of Oxford. The headline for his story is Climate Change Multi-country media analysis shows scepticism of the basic science is dying out. His story begins. Any regular viewer of BBC's Question Time would be forgiven for thinking that old-fashioned climate science denialism is alive and kicking. 
In a recent edition, panellist Julie Hartley Brewer called the IPCC's climate models complete nonsense and dismissed the 2022 record UK heatwave and the floods in Pakistan by saying, it's cold weather. But for some time now, researchers have suggested the balance of arguments propagated by climate sceptics or denialists has shifted from denying or undermining climate science to challenging policy solutions designed to reduce emissions. Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Links for all those stories mentioned in this episode will be in the show notes. Yes, thanks so much for your company and I urge you to follow this podcast for when you do that, you'll be automatically alerted every time I publish a new episode. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with your friends. In fact, I'd love you to share it with your friends, for we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis. And please contact me, and you can do that by email at number 7 at icloud.com. Once again, please take care.